Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to James chapter 2. We're going to be continuing in on our series through the book of James this morning into James 2. Uh, as you're turning there and finding your way, I wanted to highlight one unique opportunity that we have that exists every Sunday here at Southwood. It's our Life Builder Sunday morning group. Uh, here at Southwood, we believe that God uses the intimacy of Christ-centered small groups to bring about transformation, that there's something unique about smaller group settings in which we experience community and we walk in it, uh, that God transforms us and uses those settings to transform us and to deepen us and to mature us. And so we want to highlight for you guys, especially if you have a schedule, the other family responsibilities or schedule constraints or doing a weekday small group is just too difficult to manage that one of the best opportunities and one of the easiest things to do is to jump into our Life Builder Sunday morning group that meets every Sunday right during the service. And so if you're looking for something smaller, looking for a, a place to be known and to jump a little bit more deeply in the life of South, we wanted to highlight for you guys our Life Builders class. And you guys could, if you're normally kind of a, a second service person, you can jump into the first service and then jump into our Life Builders class that meets immediately after the first service each Sunday. I wanted to highlight that for you as you're thinking through the semester and how to jump in and how to continue to get involved here at Life of Southwood. Well, as we jump in in James chapter 2 this morning, for those of y'all who have not met me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace Bible and, and have had the privilege of being here at Southwood, frankly, since we opened in 2008. So it's a joy to get to jump in for Jacob. If you see him uh, in the foyer, it is his birthday today. So I know he would love for you to uh, mess with him in some form or fashion. Uh, but as a birthday gift, I told him I'd love to fill in for him and love jumping, particularly in this passage in the book of James. And so if you don't know me specifically, uh, it may be helpful for you to realize that there's a certain set of consistent choices I make in my life that are really a result of a set of preferences that are ingrained and deep in, in ruts in how I exist and how I live life. And those references and those preferences will probably alienate most of you at some point in time, but let me kind of walk you through a few of them. First of all, I'm, I'm a Chipotle over Freebirds guy, all right? Uh, if you're a Freebirds person, I'm sorry. Uh, in terms of uh, I'm a Torchy's Tacos over Fuego guy, all right? In terms of chocolates in the dessert world, uh, I'm a Ghirardelli chocolate at all costs at every turn kind of guy. We don't bake with anything in our home other than Ghirardelli. We're, we're just sophisticated and have a high taste, okay? Uh, in terms of sodas, if you're a soda person, I, I firmly believe that Dr. Pepper is the chosen sweet nectar of the gods, and every other soda is a lesser quality soda, all right? Uh, in terms of sports teams, we really don't need to talk about the Dallas Cowboys, but there's a preference there. Uh, but there's all kinds of preferences that exist in my life and in yours for foods, for restaurants, for sports teams, for hobbies, whatever it may be. And for many of us, those, those preferences don't just exist to things that are impersonal, but it also eventually relates to personal people and persons as well. For me, I, if, uh, for those of that have kids, none of us would ever say that we have favorite kids because that's not okay to say, but, and it's not true necessarily, but we all have favorite friends of our kids. And so there are times where our kids are going to get jumped into a carpool, and depending on who's going to be in the carpool, I may volunteer or not volunteer, all right? Just being honest. Uh, we have favorite musicians. We have favorite hairstylists. I don't trust this to anyone. Certain skills involved in this, all right? Uh, also, some of you may have favorite preachers, and, and I'm subbing in this morning, and that's okay, all right? And so we all have favorite persons and favorite situations, and really for many of us, whether it's food or snacks or sports teams or restaurants, it's not that big of a deal. But what we're going to see from James chapter 2 this morning is that when our normal human tendency to have favorites becomes applied to persons, what's happening is not innocent and not neutral at all. James chapter 2 is going to be a warning to you and I about the dangers 
of favoritism and preferences when it's applied to persons. James chapter two, if you wanna kind of summarize it this way, one could say it's when preference isn't your prerogative. That when we think about persons and peoples, what we're gonna see from James chapter two is that we are not allowed to have preferences for people because there's something insidious and dangerous about it. James is gonna give us a series of reasons why it is problematic and it's troubling and it's gonna begin in James chapter two, verse one with the simple idea that it confuses the gospel. Before we get into James 2, verse 1, I want you to see the flow of thought for how we got from last week's passage to this week's passage. Because in James chapter 1, verse 27, this is where Jacob left us last week as we wrapped up chapter 1. We found this in James 1 as the beginning of the, of the, or the end of the chapter. Pure and undefiled religion is this. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In James chapter one, we saw this incredible thrust and emphasis to be doers of the word. And James one ends with this kind of, in a sense, finale thrust, which was that the mark of a mature God-honoring believer was this. It's the ability to visit and to care for those that are vulnerable and needy, like widows and orphans. Widows and orphans were, in a sense, illustrious, an example of the kind of needy and vulnerable that exists at the time. And so what James did is he talked about being doers of the world as he boiled it down and he said, one of the key marks of a healthy and mature believer is someone who cares for, is engaged with on an ongoing basis, those that are the most needy. That's where James ends chapter one. Chapter two, what we're gonna see this morning is that he's gonna go to a root problem that exists in each of our lives that if unchecked and undealt with will make it impossible for us to fulfill the command that he gave us at the end of chapter one. Especially what he's going to do is he's going to surface the issue and the human tendency of favoritism or partiality. And he's going to say this issue as it exists in our lives, as it exists in all of our lives, if it's unchecked, it will leave us unable to fulfill the commands that we were given at the end of one to care for the needy and the vulnerable. Here's how he says it in chapter 2, verse 1. He continues on and he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, the faith that you have in Jesus Christ himself, you cannot hold it in the human tendency of a comparison and hold or consider that they are congruent with one another. That these two things are absolutely incongruent with one another and they cannot be held together. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter three when he says that speaking of the renewal that we have in Jesus Christ, he says it's a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave and free men, but Christ is all and in all and for all. As we think about the gospel, we think about what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf for those of us who know him and have believed in him, that that truth that Jesus Christ was sent to take on human flesh and to die in our place, that we who are sinful, who would receive the just penalty for our sins of eternal separation from the creator God, that Jesus would die in our place, receiving the wrath of God unto himself so that he could extend to us forgiveness and grace so that we could enter not just into a relationship with him again, but ultimately the very dignity and the very value that he bestowed upon us at creation could be restored one day in a relationship with him. In fact, if we go back into our Bibles, all the way back into Genesis chapter one, what we see is that God created all of humanity with dignity irrespective of race, irrespective of culture, irrespective of age, every single one of us has dignity and worth because we're created in the image of God. That dignity, that value, that worth is 
is in a sense defaced, like, a, like an art masterpiece in which graffiti is put over it, but it is not erased. It's still there. And from Genesis 3, moving through the rest of our Bible, what we see is God's redemptive work to bring about eventual reconciliation of a relationship with his created humanity, but also a restoration of the glory that he bestowed upon us at the very beginning of creation when he endowed us with his glory, having been made in his image, able to represent him, able to rule on his behalf, able to have a relationship with the creator himself. But when sin enters the picture, that's marred. And so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to die in our place so that we could be reconciled, not just to a relationship, but ultimately toward a restoration of that glory. Available and accessible for all people of all time, of all culture. What Paul is trying to say in Colossians 3 is that reconciliation, that restoration that's available, it's available to all people without partiality. There's no distinction as to who can come and receive this great free gift. And so what James is trying to do in chapter 2, verse 1, as he begins this section, is to say that the normal human tendency to have favoritism, even of peoples, is incongruent with the gospel, that these two things don't go together at all. And in many ways, for me, it's a little bit like the idea of a fun run. All the nonprofits and charities that want to raise money by getting us all to go to a fun run, the idea of fun and run just don't go together for me. If you want my money, just ask for it. Don't make me run, okay? Same way. The gospel favoritism are two realities that they cannot be wedded and held together because they are incongruent with one another. But this idea of favoritism is particularly the investing and granting of honor or recognition of honor to some, and it is the withholding of honor from others. That what partiality is or what favoritism is, it is the granting of honor to some, but it is the withholding or the dismissing of it for others. And what James is going to do in our next example is he's going to show us that that tendency is going to lead not just to a confusion of the gospel, but it's also going, going to lead to a cruelty specifically to the vulnerable. That when you and I grant honor to some and we withhold honor from others, it's likely and it's most likely that that's going to lead to a cruelty to the vulnerable. And he's going to give us an example of how it works itself out even within their gathered church assembly. Notice James 2, verses 2 to 3 and 4. He says this, gives an example. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and he's dressed in fine clothes and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James is highlighting two different groups that existed within the church at the time, imagining that these two different kinds of people have entered into the gathering assembly, and he highlights the tendency and probably the actual reality that existed within their gathered midst in which two different people groups were being treated incredibly differently. Those that were rich, those that had resources were were treated with great honor, that they were being paid special attention to, given a choice seating. Those that were poor, that had no resources, were given we're being dismissed and not acknowledged and given the worst of the seats. Particularly if we put it a little bit more underneath the motives that would have existed, the church was honoring those that could benefit itself and they were neglecting those that could not benefit it, financially speaking. And what James is gonna say is that that is evil. And there's a distinction that's occurring with evil motives and it must be addressed and it must be seen. 
thinking through that this week, I was thinking of many of the times that I've showed up either to Walmart or to Lowe's or to H-E-B, and I have a list because someone in my family wanted me to go get something, and I can't find it. And I've called, and calling at home doesn't help, and so now I'm just kind of in the place where I have to ask someone. And so I go up to some college dude who's working there on an hourly rate, and I say, hey, man, I'm looking for some crazy seasoning that I can't find. Could you just help me? And what I almost typically get is the guy going, I have no idea, dude. But it's probably aisle six somewhere over there. Good luck, right? And then I'm 30 seconds later, I'm walking away, and some cute college girl walks up to him and says, hey, I can't find this. And what does he do? Walks her right over to aisle six, right up to the item, because he thinks that maybe this could be his future spouse, right? That there's an offer and an opportunity that exists with her that doesn't exist with me, and so there's a different treatment. Why? Because I can't offer what she might one day offer him in the future spouse, all right? See, we treat people constantly differently because we're gauging and thinking about how they could potentially benefit us and what we could get out of it. That natural human tendency of favoritism or what's going to be called later on in our passage, partiality, is a granting of honor to some and a neglecting or a withholding of that honor from others. Why? Because one group can benefit us and one group can't. One group can receive our kindness and one day pay it back in some form or fashion. Another group will receive it and has nothing to pay it back. And what James is recognizing is that for his audience, and I would submit for us, there's a normal human tendency to move in ways and have rhythms in our relationships where we grant honor, distinction, value, and attention to those that can bless us and benefit us while withholding it from those that can't. A few years ago, I was reading a book called Unbroken by an author named Laura Hildebrand. She's also the one that wrote Seabiscuit. And in a book called Unbroken, she's detailing the story of a guy named Louis Zapparini who was an Olympic runner. And in the story, she's, uh, she's talking about the fact that he was in a bomber that got shot down, and he's going to be over open ocean for 40 days floating in a raft. He's going to survive that before he shows up into a POW camp. And she's going to, in the book, detail the kinds of challenges that existed for him in the midst of that story. And I love what she says, and it's insightful thinking through the two different things that he, she, or that he had to work through. And this is what he, she says. The crash of the Green Hornet, which was his bomber, had left Louis and Phil in the most desperate physical extremity. Without food, water, or shelter, they were lost at sea on a raft for over 40 days. Can you imagine? But on the island that they would become a POW uh, prisoner in, the guards sought to deprive them of something that had sustained them even as all else had been lost. Dignity. The self-respect and sense of self-worth, the innermost armament of the soul, lies at the heart of humanness. She goes on, she says, to be deprived of it is to be dehumanized, to be cleaved from and cast below mankind. Men subjected to dehumanizing treatment experience profound wretchedness and loneliness, and they find that hope is almost impossible to retain. Without dignity, identity is erased, and in its absence, men are defined not by themselves, but by their captors and their circumstances in which they are forced to live. The book is a fascinating read, it's a compelling read, but particularly this section to me has always stood out as she's thinking about what it was like for them to experience those two different things. On one hand, they could be 40 days on open ocean with no food and no water, and they would survive it with the utensils and the parts of the raft that they had. But on the other hand, they could be in a POW camp, which was an incredibly different experience. In one, they would have hope and a sense of dignity and in the, the unlikely reality of surviving in another 
they would sometimes wish death upon themselves because of the experience that they were under, in which their dignity was being withheld, in which their honor was being removed, in which they were seen as less than human. See, when you and I move in the midst of relationships, granting honor and recognizing it where God has placed it because he's created dignity for all of humanity, and then we move towards others and we dismiss the dignity, dignity that they have, we are making them something other than the creator God has deemed them to be. As their dignity is erased, their identity is questioned, and the experience becomes one in which now their worth, their value becomes defined by someone else or by their circumstances at large. Thinking through this, I want to kind of get move forward a little bit more of a practical moment for you guys, and I just want to simply ask you two questions. The first is this. How do you define your worth? How would you articulate your dignity? Why do you have dignity? There's a lot of answers that we could go to. There's a lot of answers that we could know are the right answer, but in the reality, in the quietness of your own heart and mind, when you sense striving in your life, you sense struggle in your life, you sense an assault toward your worth or your character or your value, on what basis are you defining that worth? I kind of did this a little bit already, but as we look through our scriptures, I think the answer that we get from Genesis to Revelation is that our worth is defined not by someone else or by our circumstances, but by our creator, God, who deemed us and bestowed upon us dignity and worth because he created us in his image. And he deemed us so valuable that he would send his only begotten son to take on human flesh and to die the worst of deaths. Because why? Because we were that valuable. That a relationship with us was that valuable that he would go to that measure and experience that level of difficulty and pain for us. And yet, for many of us, we are looking for someone else's approval. We're looking for some level of accomplishment. We're looking for some level of a bank account to finally determine and to settle the question of our worth once and for all. And one of the things I want you to hear this morning is that if you are continuing to try to find your worth and your sense of value in someone else's approval or some accomplishment or some bank account or some other kind of voice or uh, a person other than the creator God, you're going to be churning and spinning for a lifetime because no one else can answer it the way the creator God has once and for all. But this passage primarily in James 2 isn't about your sense of worth. I'm bringing it up though because if your sense of how you define your worth is off, then guess what? How you define someone else's worth is going to be off as well. And if your worth is defined by your circumstances, your accomplishments, your bank account, your social standing, then how you determine someone else's worth is likely going to be whether they can help you build up your sense of worth or not. If you're unsettled as to whether you're worthy, then you're going to be looking for people who can help make sense of whether you're worthy or not. And you're going to be all the more prone and all the more vulnerable to the tendency to fall into favoritism and partiality because your sense of self-worth is so fragile that you're so desperate that you need someone else to ensure, support, and undergird this question of your own worth. And then now we especially begin to move towards people who can help us and move away from the people who can't help us. Favoritism is a movement towards certain people and granting of them honor and recognition of their dignity because they can help us 
while neglecting and dismissing those that can't help us. And so how do you define your worth? And secondly, this is where I was going, what are the motives that drive your determination of other people's worth? How do you define your worth and what are the motives that are behind why you determine that some people are worthy of your attention and why some people are not worthy of your attention? James 2 is a pretty challenging section coming at this issue, helping the church realize that they were in the wrong, thinking about their own assembly and how they were treating the rich and the poor. But this issue of favoritism, this issue of partiality, I think exists in each one of our hearts in which we look at life as one massive networking experience. (laughs) What are the people that can benefit us and what are the people that just hurt us or offer us nothing? And it's so easy to get into the orbit of moving towards those that can help us with our attention, our time and our effort and our gifts, knowing that there's something that they can do back for us to benefit us while moving away from those that can offer us nothing. What James is gonna say is that this issue of favoritism, this issue of partiality isn't just leading to a confusion of the gospel. It doesn't just lead to a cruelty to the vulnerable, to those that are needy, that have nothing to offer us. But thirdly, it also leads to a contradiction with God's choice. That when you and I begin to provide honor to those that can benefit us and we withhold it from those that can't, we inevitably begin to move in an opposite direction from the creator God. Notice the way that James does this here as we go into verses five and six. Notice what he says. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You can get a series of rhetorical questions. This is the first of three in these upcoming verses in which he's gonna keep driving the point home to say, have you woken up and have you, can you wake up to see that you're moving in a direction that's opposite the way that God moves? God always chooses the poor. In fact, he's gonna go on in verses seven, uh, six and seven. And he says, is it not the rich who oppress you and they personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you, which you have been called? Not only do they not honor you, but they don't honor the Lord himself. And so why do you keep choosing the rich who can benefit you and neglecting the poor who can't? You're just making the rich richer. This evening, there's a small football game going on. Um, I might have mentioned to you that I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, so I just can't bring myself to root for the Eagles at all, all right? Uh, The dirty Eagles, I just can't do it. Um, They won a Super Bowl in 2017, but they've done nothing really for the rest of their history, at least in my estimation. And so I will not be rooting for the Eagles, but tonight I will be rooting for Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, all right? So I don't know if you're a Chiefs fan. At least for me, I'm more in the camp of I like the Chiefs and I just hate the Eagles. I'm going to go that direction. But in many ways, I feel like I'm doing exactly what James is talking about. I feel like I'm rooting for the rich here. The rich are going to get richer. These guys have been in the AFC Championship five years in a row. Patrick Mahomes, we're going to have dynasty talk after tonight and after he walks away with another Super Bowl. The rich will get richer tonight. Bet on it. But you didn't hear that if I'm a pastor, all right? That's what's going to happen tonight. <laughs> The rich get richer, and what James is trying to say in James 2 is that the rich get richer when we continue to choose the rich that can benefit us, and we neglect the poor who can't. That's where James is going to go, and he's going to keep driving it home with one last point when he says that it's not just that it leads to a contradiction with God's choice, but lastly, it leads to a conviction by the law of love. And James is going to move us here in this last section away from just the rich and the poor to the broader concept of love. But notice how he does it beginning in verse 8. Notice what he says. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you should love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But 
if you show partiality, which is the opposite of what he was just talking about, then you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law. What James is doing here in verses 8 to 10 is he's setting up a contrast between loving of our neighbor as ourselves, that it shows no partiality, and partiality, which is a breaking of love. Love is always a movement of kindness and blessing towards someone without an expectation of it returning. That's the definition of love. And what partiality is, is is a granting of kindness or benefit to someone with the expectation that it can come back. And so what James is trying to do here as we think through this section, he's trying to say that the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of Christ himself that was referenced in James 1 is essentially understood and and captured by the idea that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. that this is the essence of what he's asking the community of faith to be. A faith, a community that's gathered around a profession of faith that as they move into the world, they move forward in love that shows no distinction with the kindness that is offered. That moves into the world blessing and loving those that can pay it back and those that can't. That there's no distinction in the way that they navigate and they move. He broadens that out in verses 12 and 13 as he wraps up the section and he says this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. The other thing I think that James is doing here in the first half of chapter two is that he's going to introduce a concept that's going to be dominant and a thread that's gonna be woven throughout our next week's passage in the latter half of James two and that's the idea of the judgment of the believer on the basis of their works. One of the things that we see as we look out throughout the scriptures is that for those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we know that we will not be judged because the shed blood of Christ has forgiven us. We know that we will confidently have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we've been secured for all of eternity. But as we look throughout the scriptures, that safety, that security does not mean that we won't still be evaluated with how we live. That evaluation or that judgment does not determine heaven and hell because that's been secured and dealt with already. But it does determine rewards and what God does and what God grants us and how he evaluates us in the future. And so we're gonna talk about that theme a lot next week in James chapter two, one of the most, the latter half, one of the most controversial passages in the book and in the church today, which will be a fun discussion and a fun topic And Jacob comes back and, and walks us through that next week. But in the meantime, well, here's what I want you to see. This idea of judgment of the believer that's being highlighted here in the first half of two that's gonna weave through the rest of two and even into James chapter three speaking about our speech, idea or concept that has to be terrifying. Why? Because here at the end of our section, he's going to show us that God's judgment or his evaluation of his people is always graded on a curve. It's always graded on a curve, but notice the nature of the curve. What does he say? That the one who has shown no mercy, or sorry, the judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy but mercy triumphs over judgment. The implication is that if you and I are the kind of people who extend mercy even to those like the needy and vulnerable who can't pay it back, if that's a character, if that's a quality of our lives, a a quality of the pattern of our relationships, then that judgment will be one that we don't have to worry about. But James 2 is an incredible warning that if we're the kind of people that only move in relationships in such a way that we show honor to those that can do something for us, and we withhold it, and we disregard people that can do nothing for us, and we need to be forewarned. That day won't go well. Even if that day doesn't go well, it doesn't mean that we're going to be sent to hell if we know Jesus Christ. But that day, we will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That day will not be a day that leads to reward for us in the future. 
the day there will be a loss and, and sadness for how we lived and that we didn't invest our lives as God desired us to do. James 2's first half of this chapter is simple. The charge is this. Move forward in the midst of relationships in love and do not show partiality. Giving distinctions among people is based off of whether they can help us and benefit us or not. But as the people of God, we move into our communities and we show kindness and love to all without distinction, without qualification as to whether they can do something to help us or not. So what do we do with that? I want to kind of give you a sense of a closing question as we think it through, and it's this. How do we show mercy to all people without reciprocity? How do we show mercy and love to people without the expectation that we would be benefited from it? How do we do that? I'm gonna give you a couple different applications in a couple different directions. The first is that we love the poor and we love the vulnerable. I don't know how you walk out of chapter one and into chapter two without a striking clarity that this is a theme that is dominating the text. This theme is gonna continue on even into the controversial section that we'll look at next week in which the question is, do we feed and give food and water to someone who's hungry and thirsty? Do we give a jacket to someone who's cold or do we just say, Godspeed? The question becomes, how do we care for the, lo- the poor and the vulnerable? Uh, thinking through that personally for me this week, I was struck by Proverbs chapter 28, verse 27 says this. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. To be perfectly honest with you guys, there's a lot of times where some of us uh, that are on staff are preaching passages that I'm like, this is my wheelhouse. Like, I'm passionate about this topic, and I'm crushing this topic. This is a theme (laughs) uh, coming into this passage in this week. I thought, Lord, why'd you give me this one? Um, I'm not crushing this one at all. And so even thinking through applications for my wife and I as we were thinking about it and for our family, it was very much like aspirational. Like we are at a starting spot and we've got to figure out how to start and begin to move in this area in a whole different kind of way. And and particularly was thinking through our life where it's not like we live life where we're walking by the needy and vulnerable and we shut our eyes and like walk away. But by and large, our lives are built in such a manner that I don't have to walk by and see the needy and vulnerable. For many of you college students, I'd say you may see needs as well, but in terms of the community at large, so many of our patterns and rhythms, life is built in a way that I don't have to even see, and I can be sheltered from what's going on in the community at large. So how do we care for the needy and vulnerable? Not that we've shut our eyes, but we've navigated life and we're on roads where we don't even see them anymore sometimes. What do we do? A couple ideas for you, a couple thoughts. Uh, the first is one of the reasons why we partner with about eight to 10 community partner organizations and nonprofits that are in town as a local church body is so that we give an opportunity for our people to come and to serve and to engage in some consistent spaces with experts in those spaces so that our desire to engage and to love is most channeled the most strategic ways possible. And so for us here at Southwood, one of the things, a couple of groups that you'll hear about us talk a lot about is about the Bee Community and about Habitat for Humanity. Habitat for Humanity. A couple different organizations that are doing some amazing things in, those community, in this community, and we will try to highlight them as many times as we can. But that's just two of about 10 different partner organizations that we have. And so one of the things I would challenge you to do is to, this afternoon, jump on our website. You can go to our website, 
go to the uh, section of the menu, choose local outreach, look for community partners, or just go to this URL. And what you'll see is a breakdown of the 10 different community partners that we've, uh, community organizations that we've partnered with, that we've vetted, that we know, that we trust, that we believe are doing some amazing things in this community. I know a family that their pattern, their rhythm is to jump in with one of those guys every Saturday once a month. They bring their family along with them and it's a whole family experience. I know some small groups that do stuff together as well and that it's often not meant to be an individual thing, but it can be a communal thing. And so the question is, are there ways and are there opportunities through some of these community partners that you can begin to see the needs that exist in the community at large? To not close your eyes, but to open your eyes and to step into spaces that you wouldn't step into naturally based off the rhythms that you have and the responsibilities that you have. The second I would say is, uh, that while that is good, that sometimes it's also about just extending and expanding your relational circle. Uh, and this is where my wife and I felt most convicted thinking through our lives that in many ways, we don't see the needy and vulnerable because the relational circles we've built are often not that broad and not that diverse. And, and the worlds that we're living in have just gotten sheltered in some ways. Our kids are at public school. And so we've been thinking, how do we, in the midst of our public school world that our kids are in, and the teams that they're on, how do we begin to expand our relationships, our friendships, so that when the needy and vulnerable and needs arise, that we're within a relational context to see it and respond to it with joy, with passion, and with enduring commitment and enduring relationship. Church, I wanna challenge you, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, then how do you begin to rebuild your relational world so that you can see what's going on in the community, that your heart can break for it, and that you can not just pop in on a service project, but that you can begin to build some enduring relationships in some spaces that are different than the ones that you normally navigate in. For Marcy and I, I'd say we're at a place that we have a question, we have some initial ideas and answers, but we don't yet have the sustained pattern of doing this. So we're just beginning and being challenged thinking along these lines. I think this passage isn't just about the needy and the vulnerable, though, because I think that the latter half of our passage opens it, thinking about loving our neighbor as ourselves, and it expands it, not just to the needy and the vulnerable, but it challenges us to extend our attention to all people. I think there's so many interactions I have on a daily basis where I walk into a room, I have a chance to respond to an email, I have a chance to step into a situation, and I have such an ingrained tendency to think through who is a high-yield, high-benefiting situation, and what's not. I mean, in my own heart, I recognize a constant tendency to want to give attention to where there seems to be yield and benefit and withdraw my attention and my time from where it seems like there's not. And at least for me, thinking through this morning and this passage, it began to kind of challenge me in two different ways. In terms of my physical presence, when I walk into a room, how am I thinking, how am I operating, and how do I respond relationally, physically when I walk into a room? Who do I drift towards? Who am I talking to and why? Honestly, are there some situations and some people that I'm avoiding and why? How about you? Sometimes it starts this afternoon, it starts in the foyer, it starts this afternoon at an organization that you have a meeting in. When you walk into a room, why do you drift and operate and tend in the directions of some people and away from others? What are the motives that are behind that? And is it innocent or is it troubling? Does it confuse the gospel or does it reveal the gospel? 
not just our physical presence, also I'd argue it can be even our digital presence. My daughter is seventh grade. Uh, it's the first time that the social pecking order is starting to be established in school. Uh, she's having a great seventh grade experience. Mine was not great. I didn't work out so well in that pecking order. It's fine. Still processing it with the counselor, but it's fine. Um, but even just watching her digitally uh, with a phone and thinking through friends and, and times when some people are responding to text messages and some people are ghosting people. Phone, email, social media platforms, that even your digital presence, when are you extending attention and honor to people and when are you withdrawing it and not letting them even feel that? What's behind your approach? What's behind the differences in the way that you're treating people, whether physically or even digitally? And what does that reveal? Our band's gonna come up and they're gonna close us out this morning thinking through, again, trying to create a space for you to process and to think through exactly how we respond relationally to people, what it reveals about who we believe that we are, our sense of worth, our sense of dignity, and then particularly thinking through how does it reveal and what does it speak to in a sense our how we would define the, other, the worth of other people. As they get settled, let me pray for us and pray for us as we process. Lord God, I'm so grateful uh, for the book of James that uh, has no problem poking us between the eyes and revealing what's lacking. Often without softness, but just with challenge. And so Lord, I pray this morning as we process and as we come before you and even as we respond in worship, Lord, I pray that your spirit would not exhaust us or condemn us, but would softeningly and encouragingly invite us forward to see ourselves as you see us, to see others as you see them, Lord, that we could begin to move in the midst of communities, in the midst of our relationships in a profoundly different way. Not, without, not with partiality, not with favoritism, but extending honor and love to all people without distinction, modeling what we've seen in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.